Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Today is our first Facets Friday episode, and we will be speaking with Lynn Alsup. Lynn Alsup holds a Master's of Social Work degree and a Certificate in Spiritual Direction. In the spring of 2014, she read Diane Malvin's book, Trying Differently Rather Than Harder, while researching FASD for a friend. Lynn recognized her family's story. She dove deep into further research and began sharing her learning professionally and implementing the model at home. It transformed both her career and family. Committed to increasing understanding, support, and resiliency for neurodiverse people and their families, she became a certified facilitator of the FACETS Neurobehavioral Model in 2017. She founded Neurobehavioral Connections to consult with families and offer trainings across disciplines, including psychiatric residency students and faculty, school educators and counselors, autism clinic providers, foster care providers, therapists, and the Learning Disability Association of America. Lynn tells her story in her forthcoming memoir, Finding Home, A Tale of Adoption and Transformation. Lynn serves as a program director for FACETS from her home in West Texas with her husband and three extraordinary neurodiverse daughters. Welcome to FACETS Friday, sponsored by FACETS. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Welcome to our very first Facets Friday episode. I am so thrilled to be partnering with Facets. If you've listened to FASD Hope basically anytime, we had my husband and I have participated in the facets training and honestly facets really changed our lives and changed the trajectory of our families. So we decided to partner with facets to provide our listeners with educational, almost like a mini educational class podcast through facets. And we're so, so thrilled that we're going to have different uh, presenters each time we do a Facets Friday. And uh, this is our first Facets Friday. So I am so thrilled to be having my new friend and fellow mom advocate, fellow advocate. She's just amazing. She's a Facets facilitator. Her journey is amazing and her family's journey is amazing as well. I am welcoming to FASD Hope and as the first Facets Friday teacher, Lynn Alsup. Lynn, welcome to FASD Hope. Thank you so much, Natalie. It is such a privilege to be here. I'm just so grateful to 
both get to be a part of facets and to get to know you and for all the work that you are doing um, for the sake of spreading the word about FASD and the hope that so many of us have found within it. It's just, um, yeah, something that we can all be incredibly grateful for. So thank you. Thank you, Lynn. And for those of you, uh, just just FYI, Lynn and I talked for about 30 minutes before we started recording <laughs> because we just have so many parallels in our families and in our, our life mm. journeys. It's it's amazing. So um, so just uh just know that uh, Lynn will, I'm sure Lynn will be back on FASD Hope <laughs> again soon. So Facets Friday, what, what the intent is, is to teach our listeners, to give listeners an educational component um, about the neurobehavioral model of parenting and caregiving. Um, so we have chosen for today's topic uh, will be adjusting timelines and shifting expectations. We thought that would be a good place to start. But before we start, of course, we need to know about our speaker and our, or I should say our teacher, and just tell us a little bit about your family's journey, Lynn, and what led you to wanting to become an educator in facets for those that have an FASD or a neurobehavioral diagnosis? Yeah, I'm happy to share that. And I always like to start in my trainings by letting people know that I have full permission from my family to talk about our story. I just really want to honor um, that our journeys are all intertwined, but I end up talking about theirs quite a bit. So I always clear that with my kids especially. Um, so I just want to put that in there. So they have given me permission to talk to you and all of your listeners today about our journey. So we um, have three daughters who are now, let's see, 22, um, 17, and 15. And they're all adopted. Um, and we have been on a journey really since our first daughter came home from Haiti. She was born in Haiti. She's an extraordinary young woman. And, but life with her, um, not but, and life with her has always been pretty confusing to us. Um, we really kind of stepped into parenthood with her. She was a year old when she came home. We stepped into parenthood with her kind of thinking we would just slide in to a normal life with an one-year-old child, and that is not what happened for us. Um, and then we adopted um, her sisters a little bit after that, and life continued to just have a lot of chaos and confusion, and we tried all of the parenting things that we knew, you know, were supposed to be how you parented. I'm a social worker. My husband has a degree in marriage and family therapy. So we thought, you know, we've got this, we know how to do this kind of stuff. And, um, and we just didn't, and, and things continued to get more and more out of control until our oldest daughter was 13 years old and let the bottom really just dropped out of our life together. And um, she was really, really struggling. We all were. And, she ended up going into residential treatment for um, a couple of years. We didn't know it at the time. We, I don't think I would have ever agreed to that. I, 
who started with a six-week wilderness program that was really therapeutic and focused on attachment, that kind of thing. Um, and all of that was really helpful to us, but it's at that point that I started really researching just what is going on and coming at it from an attachment and trauma lens, which was really helpful to us. Um, but we discovered that it just wasn't enough. It still didn't really get us where we wanted to be. Um, our daughter came home. Our other two daughters were starting to really struggle as well. Our oldest daughter ended up having to go to another placement a year and a half later. So it was a very tumultuous time. Um, but within that, I found FASD really pretty miraculously through a friend. I started doing some research for a friend's daughter um, and some, one of her friends had told her, I think this is FASD, which neither of us had ever heard of before. Um, and I recognized our family, um, really our youngest daughter, really quickly um, when I started doing that research and I landed in Diane Malbin's book, you know, trying differently rather than harder. And it just resonated so completely with me. I think partly because Diane is a social worker, you know, so we kind of spoke the same language and, and the book, as you know, is so kind of succinct and was just a really amazing jumping off point for me. So I ended up diving deep into the world of FASD and facets and, and that was the beginning of my journey that was I think in 2015 maybe so it's been a while now that I've been on this on this road but um, it totally transformed our family and our life and and bringing the neurobehavioral model and an understanding of FASD kind of in conjunction with the attachment and trauma stuff that we'd already been working with um, it just gave us a, a really clear picture um, of what was going on as clear as it can get, you know, with our daughter. Honestly. So first of all, thank you for sharing your, your journey. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, I affectionately call it the little purple book. I mean, it's the That's first, exactly what it's, I call it too. it's yeah. the first purple book purple I tell book. any listener, yes. any, anyone who messages yeah. or, or emails us, I'm like, this is the book where you yeah. start. Um, yeah. and, and I can say that I probably have about 10 copies at home because I lend Me them out too. and I get them back, you know, all the time. Um, yeah. but, but really that book, Diane's book is, is just it, like you said, it's the launching place. To, yeah. That's where you start. And then finally, I, I'm so glad that you're reaffirming because we share this a lot in our episodes and with guests and other guests bring this up. Um, really, the, the neurobehavioral model, the, the facets model of parenting a child with an FASD or brain-based diagnosis, plus the trauma strategies, the tr knowing trauma and attachment, they really like, you cannot separate them. The conjunction of those two models, trauma and neurobehavioral, you really cannot do one without the other when you're parenting a child, yeah. either with an FASD or coming from a hard place or any, right. those right. two models, really, you just need to have them both 
in the forefront of your mind when you are, you know, thinking about your, your child's trajectory. What neuroscience tells us is that trauma, um, physical trauma or emotional trauma changes the brain. And so we're really looking at a brain-based difference. You know, there are things I think that the trauma model, the attachment, when you're talking about um, disordered attachment, there are some things that that model really gives to us to what's going on with attachment that I think are really helpful. Um, but really there, we're talking about a brain that has been changed, you know, whether it's by trauma or prenatal exposure, um, or you both. Know, lack of oxygen at birth, mm-hmm. both yeah. absolutely yeah. emotional trauma, even prenatal, you know, yeah. um, experiencing domestic violence prenatally say has a huge impact on yes. the development. So yeah, we're really talking about the same thing, obviously picking some sort of jewels from each thing. But, um, and I guess one thing I'd like to say too, it's not so much a part of this conversation, but I've recently been aware of a conversation happening on Facebook, you know, about trying differently rather than harder. And I know there are some folks who um, have not actually had a positive experience with it, which is a little hard for me to wrap my head around because it was so transformational, you know, for our family. But I think the thing about trying differently rather than harder is that it is a jumping off point and really getting deeper into the model that Diane created is really important. Um, There's a, a bit of a conversation happening about um, the book saying that no person with FASD can learn from consequences. And so you should never give consequences or let a person experience natural consequences. And I would just love to have the opportunity to say that is actually not the way we implement the model necessarily. And we, um, at facets just completely agree that every person is different and, it makes sense to me that on a quick first read of trying differently rather than harder, you might come away with that understanding. Um, But really it's just so much bigger than that, so much deeper and wider and there's space for every kind of difference. That's actually the sort of foundation as I see it of the neurobehavioral model is that everyone is unique and needs different kinds of accommodations. So I just kind of wanted to address that because I've seen it quite a bit lately on Facebook and I'd love for people to hear that. Yes. And I'm glad you're addressing that too, because we talk about our experience, you know, um, in our fastest training and what we've learned and, you know, and, and I know, and, you know, anyone out there who has a, a, a child, a young adult, um, especially a teen, a young adult with an FASD or another brain-based diagnosis, it just starts all over again. You know, this is cyclic. This there's no, it's like, I tell people, you're not going to take the training and say, Oh, okay. Everything's fine. No, you're going to take the training and say, I have a better understanding. Now I need to step back. I'm learning about the diagnosis. I need to step back, accommodate, figure things out from a brain based lens, from a neurobehavioral Mm -hmm. lens and know that what works for my family 
may not work for, for someone right. else's family. So right. I really think for me, there is no cure, no one size fits all, but mm-hmm. how I see facets in the facets training is it's a resource and a tool that like I go to and I also learn more as we get on this journey more, you know, because what we're dealing with now with our son is, you know, chronologically young adult is much different than when he was, you know, a toddler or, or, you know, early school age. And we find that in the facets trainings, we um, often frustrate people by not being willing to give them answers, you know, to, okay, there's this particular thing going on in my family. What should I do about it? Because there's not, there are no ready answers, but our hope is in a facets training is that we are going to give you some information about how the brain is working, maybe what changes you might be looking for, um, some of the tools that we have to help you figure that out. But then really we're at turning the question back around and saying our hope and our work is to help you learn to think, think this way, to yes. think through the model and think this way in a thousand different situations and be able to both see the strengths of the individual and the challenges and come up with accommodations based on those strengths. Yes. So we don't want to give you answers. We want to give you a paradigm that helps you find the answers, no matter what the question is, which again is kind of frustrating for people in our training. Sometimes I think I can see, especially if you're coming from a really hard place, I can totally see that. Absolutely. You want answers. Yeah. Yeah. You you know, you and I have both in those we've been in those situations. Oh, you man. do. I know. Absolutely. Oh my Absolutely. goodness. You, you want those answers, but however, I think, and I'm so glad you're, you're sharing this, that really, if you think about parenting a child with any type of diagnosis, so say a medical diagnosis, there is, you know, there may not be a cure for that diagnosis, but what you are going to get once you learn the diagnosis are tools resources, Mm -hmm. support, things like that. It's the same thing with the facets training. You know, this is not a, oh, here you go. This will take care of everything. No, this is a, it's, it's a part of your toolbox that you will go Mm -hmm. to when you are presented with a symptom, um, you know, that, that we need to say, okay, how can we investigate it? So, um, And, yeah, and people, I like to say curiosity is your superpower. Yes. You know, that, yes. Oh, I love that. That is kind of our starting point. Get yes. curious. I know? love that. Pause and get curious. Right? I love that. So let's quickly talk about your facets training and um, how you learned about facets and what do you find to be the most rewarding uh, part of being a facets facilitator? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So I ended up, I think my social worker self and my mom self, you know, kind of came together. And as we really were finding our way, our, so our oldest daughter actually wasn't diagnosed until she was 16. Um, Our younger daughter was about nine when she was diagnosed. And they happened pretty, pretty quickly, about six months apart, our younger daughter was diagnosed first, but they 
they're, they look so different in their um, symptoms that we didn't really recognize our older daughter as having FASD at the same time that we did our younger daughter. So it took a little bit longer for us to say, oh, this is what FASD looks like too. You know, it can look all these different ways. Um, but once we did and things settled down in our family a little bit, as we began to implement the neurobehavioral model, I just naturally started talking to their teachers and doing what we do as advocates for our kids. You know, I started, I put together my own sort of simple training on FASD and took it to their schools and therapists and all the providers that we had sort of gathered around us over the years trying to um, find what our kids needed without really knowing what we were looking for, you know. Um, and I started talking to friends of friends, you know, a, a friend would call and say, oh my gosh, I know this family and it sounds like your family and would you be willing to talk to them? And as that started happening more and more, I realized I need more training if I'm going to be doing this. <laughs> you know, I felt like I really need to do more than just my own research to um, really move forward in this. And that's how I ended up going to the facets training because I was already in my own life using the neurobehavioral model the best way that I could. So I went to the three-day training which was so transformative for me and very much kind of cemented the idea in me that, oh my gosh, I found my people. You know, this is how I want to navigate this path. This is what really resonates with me. And I ended up then going through the, at that point it was called the training of trainers. Now it's called the training of facilitators, but I, I went through the taught then Six months later, I started it, and that was a year-long program, and I just felt like I have to share this information. It has changed our life. It's changed our daughter's lives. Our oldest daughter, as I've mentioned, had so many secondary symptoms that really weren't a part of her FASD. They were a part of the way we were responding to her FASD. You know, we still had such expectations that she would do things in a neurotypical way. I don't, I'll, I'll say, I don't love the word. Actually, I don't really like the word neurotypical because I don't think any of us are neurotypical. I think our brains are all different and we're all on a spectrum. Um, some of us have the capacity to accommodate ourselves. Maybe we're more in the middle of the spectrum. I definitely have learned I have all kinds of sensory issues. And I just don't put myself in the environments that trigger those for me. Um, some people are on a place on the spectrum where they maybe aren't able to accommodate themselves and need more support finding those accommodations. So we still had these expectations that our older daughter was going to be able to respond to her environment in the way we would respond to our environment. And because of that, she had all of these responses of, you know, she was running away. She was really withdrawing for us, uh, from us. We actually, I mean, there's a lot of attachment and trauma in that as well in her life and our life together. Um, but we, with our younger daughter, were able to implement the neurobehavioral model and our understanding of attachment and trauma early enough that 
you know, we pulled her out of school in first grade and started homeschooling her, not because we really understood what was happening, but because we clearly understood she couldn't handle that environment. She was definitely communicating that to us by crying all night long and being scared every morning. And so we brought her home and made her world really small. And we actually haven't seen almost any secondary symptoms in our younger daughter because we changed our way of understanding and our way of responding to her. So um, in our own little family, we have this really clear, um, I mean, it's not a study, obviously, it's not a research project, but this really clear difference between our older and younger daughters um, based on how we were able to respond to them. That doesn't mean that when we get the neurobehavioral model in our heads, it necessarily will work that way. Um, you know, we have another daughter that has still had lots of struggles, even with the neurobehavioral model really implemented in our home because of the differences in our relationship and her relationship to the world and all of that. Um, but it definitely has made a huge difference in our family and our family's life. So I just felt the need to, to share that, you know? And I think that what you're sharing really goes hand in hand with what we've said many times. And, and, and one of the many goals we at FASD hope have with working with facets is that you cannot change your child. You can't change right. their brain. Their brain is their brain. And I would say we shouldn't try to change them. Exactly. So many amazing gifts to offer us. Exactly. We need to incredible way of seeing the world. We need to celebrate that. Yeah. We need to celebrate their brain differences Mm -hmm. and accommodate their brain needs. You know, it really is again the training for so many years, I prayed for change in our son because Mm -hmm. I thought they were quote unquote, you know, willful, willful behaviors. And instead, when we received the diagnosis and when we started learning about the neurobehavior model and then took the training and learned more and more and more, it's really, we need to change ourselves as parents. And it's not really, we have to change the core of us. We have to change. We have to parent, be a caregiver, be a parent, be a teacher in the way that's best for that child or those children versus how the traditional air quote world tells us, oh, this is the path you should go. You know, it it really is a change. I really do believe in my heart that facets is a tool to help parents do that. Absolutely. 100%. You know, we like to talk about brain-based differences. We do still use the word invisible, the words invisible physical disability. Yes. I don't really like the word disability. I don't think it's um, real accurate. There are definitely lots of challenges that come with having a brain that has been impacted Mm -hmm. prenatally by alcohol for sure. Um, But there are different abilities, you know, and I think that's a better way to talk about it. Although it's important um, to be able to get resources and to be able to help people understand to continue, I think, to use the word disability for now, maybe our, we'll move to a place where we don't have to use that word anymore, hopefully at some point, but but we talk about that as in 
the same way that you would accommodate someone with any other kind of physical disability. Like a physical Actually, diagnosis or a medical diagnosis. Yes. Right. Absolutely. I have a, a niece who was diagnosed um, with a, a kind of rare condition called transverse myelitis. When she was 13, she woke up one day and couldn't walk all of a sudden one day. And so we, of course, began providing all kinds of accommodations for her. You know, we, she sometimes uses a scooter to get around. And I like to talk um, in our family about the similarities between my oldest daughter and my niece, and that we would never say to my niece, if you would just try harder, get up out of your scooter and walk across the room and expect her to be able to do that. And yet that's what we did with our daughter constantly. We said to her over and over again, it doesn't matter. You have to get up and try harder. You have to get up, even though she had this physical disability because her brain had been changed Mm -hmm. in utero and we didn't understand that. And so we kept asking her to do these things that she physically wasn't capable of doing at that point. Now, some of those things she's able to do now, you know, she has grown and developed in extraordinary ways. Some of them she's still not able to do. And we don't know where that will end up. You know, maybe by the time she's 40, we'll know that. I don't know. Exactly. But, yeah. And this ties in perfectly to today's topic. So today's teaching topic is adjusting developmental timelines and shifting expectations. This, this is a perfect segue into it, Lynn. Let's talk about why this is such an important foundation in the neurobehavioral model of parenting, caregiving, teaching. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I am not a neuroscientist, obviously I'm a social worker, um, among other things, but So what I like to talk about in the trainings is that the way our brains develop is by making new neural connections. When we learn new things, we make new neural connections. Um, And that happens in a way that causes our development to happen as well. So when a brain is disorganized and maybe inefficient, and maybe lacking, Um, this is a little more of the technical information, but you know, the myelination that helps or the myelinization, not sure which one it is, that helps the um, messages travel quickly through our brains. When that's not really on board in every part of the brain, that is going to really slow down our development. So you really see it across all neurodiversity. So it might be ADHD, it might be dyslexia, it might be FASD or autism, um, you know, any kind of brain-based difference, we're probably going to see a slower level of development. And we call that one of the hallmark characteristics of FASD. And again, we still use the term dismaturity when we're talking about this. It's not a great term um, because it definitely sounds like there's something wrong. We really like to talk about just a different developmental timeline rather than dismaturity, which I think is a more respectful way to talk about it. Um, But the difference between dismaturity and immaturity would be that immaturity 
sounds like and assumes that you have the capacity to sort of act your age, to be at whatever we consider the developmental level of a five-year-old or a 10-year-old, whatever it is, but you're not acting that way. Whereas dismaturity would say that you actually don't have that level of development in your brain yet. So it's not that you could act your age, but you're not. It's that actually your developmental timeline is different. And I think one of the things that's really tricky about that, um, that you know, is that there's often differential development. So it may be that someone is really advanced. Um, they may be able to articulate things in a way that sounds way beyond their age. They may not actually understand what they're saying. <laughs> they may be able to sound like that, you know, for some people. They may be really advanced in their motor skills, their gross motor skills, especially. So maybe in athletics, they're able to do things. And all of that has a basis in the brain that I think is fascinating. We could talk a lot more about why that's true. Um, but we often see that. And so beginning to get a handle on where your child is developmentally in different areas and on different days as well, or even within the same day is really important. If you think about for all of us, if we're really tired or if we're really hungry, or if we didn't get a good night's sleep, maybe we're not able to act our age all the time. <laughs> you know, we um, might not be able to process things as quickly. We might snap at our partner. We might, you know, the things that we do when we're tired or hungry or um, those kinds of things often impact the developmental level in that moment as well. So it's really tricky we're, because we expect people to be the same all the time, even though actually none of us are, but we have this expectation. Yeah, so it's a it's an important starting point. The joke in our house is is, and we say this, we share this with our son. We even share this with our six year old daughter. We're like, we don't have the bandwidth right now. Absolutely, <laughs> and and it's true. It's it's like physically, I just can't process this right now. Give mm -hmm. me, you know, put it on pause, that kind of thing. Yes. And yeah. our that, that's been a great tool that we've used with our son. You know, especially if he's possibly perseverating about something, or if he's kind yes. of stuck in something that we say, yeah. buddy, we don't have the bandwidth right now. Just, just give us some time. And Absolutely. then it's, it's a, again, like you said, it's not that, um, I'm choosing not to, or I just don't want to hear it. It's just, right. I, I don't have the capacity right yeah. now. So, I have several friends who will say, don't talk to me until I've had at least two cups of coffee. You know, those, the people and the mugs, it's everywhere. The t-shirts, the everything that says, <laughs> right. you know, don't talk to me before I've had a couple of cups of coffee. And that's because caffeine changes the way your brain is functioning. Exactly. exactly. So if you think about the way you act before coffee, if you're one of those people, as opposed to the way you act after coffee and what you're able to engage in, that's the same thing. It's what we're talking about. It's how is your brain functioning? Yes. But if you have a brain-based difference, caffeine isn't necessarily going to make your brain function more efficiently or in a more organized way. No. If we could only just do a cup of coffee, that would be, <laughs> be great. From what I've learned too, is that the individual that has an FASD or another brain-based diagnosis there are developmental leaps that happen later on in their adulthood that, yeah. you know, we as parents and 
caregivers, we have to look forward to that because yeah. that's growth that, you know, we normally think, oh, 18, they're done, launched and, and flown. So no, true. with our kids, and I use kids affectionately, yeah. we see developmental leaps in the 20s and even again in the 20s, you know, so mm -hmm. that's really, I think that's hope because yeah. it's saying that even though the development of your loved one's brain is on a different timeline, like what we're talking about, mm -hmm. it's still happening, you know? Right. And right. Um, that is, we recently had Dr. Jeffrey Wozniak on and, and mm -hmm. the title of his episode yeah. was development is lifelong. I think that theme ties into the neural behavior model because it Absolutely. is, there are jumps and gains and developments that, that happen well Absolutely. into chronological adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. I love a phrase that my um, colleague and um, a facets board member and an just amazing uh, member of the neurobehavioral community, Eileen Devine. I know she's been on your show before too. She always talks about lagging skills, which just you infer from that, that it's possible that that might catch up. You know, again, every person is different. So some people may not ever catch up. That's a possibility as well. Um, you remind me of a conversation I had with our developmental pediatrician. We were really lucky early, early on to find a developmental pediatrician not too far from us who diagnosed my youngest daughter first. And I, you know, after the diagnosis came into her office and I was just almost in tears. And I said, I I'm really struggling because I don't want to expect too little of my daughter. You know, I want her to be and do absolutely everything she can be and do. And I don't want to expect too much of her. I never want to expect more. I don't want to say, get out of your wheelchair and walk. You know, I never want to say that, but I don't know how to do that. And it was, I mean, even just now talking about it, it kind of brings it back up in me. I can feel it in my body, you know, that, that sense. And what she said to me was from everything we know right now, she's going to do great. We don't know what that's going to look like, you know, but you keep expecting her to do everything that you know that she can do right now. And then when she shows you that she can't do that, you pull it back. And that has been so helpful to me over the years of just saying, okay, I'm scared and I want to protect her, but I know in my gut that we should try this you know, and we can always regroup, which is, again, that profound sense of curiosity. Is this going to work? Is this not going to work? I don't know, but let's try well, it. Let's try see. it. Exactly. And then we'll pull back if we need to, and we can move forward. And um, my oldest daughter, which is one of the things I thought about when I was thinking about this conversation today, she has proved to me again and again and again that she can do things far beyond what I ever would have imagined. And her development has really been amazing. She's 22 now. Um, and we often say that in, within the, the facets world that, you know, typically our, a, a typically developing brain will have a big growth spurt between 18 and 22. 
which is why that's when we're in college. <laughs> you know, that's for a lot of people. That's why that's happening at that point, because the brain really makes a lot of connections. It actually also kind of pairs down its connections. So the ones that are strongest and working best can um, get even stronger and work better. For folks with brain-based differences, that doesn't often happen until early 30s. So we can plan on waiting, you know, until then to see that kind of brain development. Again, it might not happen in some people, um, but it might. You just really don't know until you walk it and see. My oldest daughter has executive function skills now that I could never have imagined in her residential treatment placements that I mentioned earlier. You know, there's, there's no way, but she's actually about to graduate from a university and she has decided she wants to get a master's and maybe a PhD. And she definitely has the intellectual capacity to do that. Not everyone with brain-based differences does, and that's not the path for lots of people. Um, and like we've talked about before, success looks different for everyone. But for her, because we have worked so hard together to create an environment that works for her and that accommodates her, she's been able to do that. She's been able to get to this place that I, I never could have imagined. And I've stopped telling her no. <laughs> you know, I've stopped saying, oh, whoa, I don't think that's going to work for you because she's shown me that that's not true. And I guess that's one of the things I'd like to, to say about this understanding this differential development and a different developmental timeline is that when we really embrace that, we allow for incredible things to happen that might not have happened otherwise, you know? So like with our oldest daughter, I'll, I'll give you an example. She miraculously graduated from high school. We didn't, I mean, our, our whole goal at one point was for her to be alive and have a high school diploma and have one healthy relationship. That was it. <laughs> you know, that was that was our hope for her. Um, and it seemed like we were reaching pretty high when we were hoping for that at some points along the journey. And she decided when she graduated from high school, as she graduated from her second residential program, that she wanted to go to college. And we really encouraged her to take a year off and school had been really a struggle for her and um, she didn't want to. And so we followed her lead and it took a long time. It took, you know, a semester of failing every class, uh, her deciding, okay, I'm willing for you to come to my advisory appointments with me and figure out how can we make this work for you? we realized she needed to have classes at the same time every day. It didn't, that's how we chose her classes based on when they met, you know, that she didn't have to get up too early and there was a consistent schedule. And so we did a lot of that trying to accommodate her needs. But one of the things we told her was you are not in a hurry. You know, this does not have to happen. Some kind of typical framework. We're not talking about four years to get out of college. We're not even talking about getting out of college. We'll just see what happens. And when we gave her that kind of time and that kind of space to just figure out how is this going to work, 
um, she has been able to do it. She'll be 23 when she graduates from college, but oh my gosh, she is graduating from college. I can't even believe it. Even as I say it now, you know, that is such a victory. That is such a victory. Yeah. And, And what you're sharing, Lynn, is you're sharing so many teachable lessons through lived experience that we are hearing, you know, examples of that adjusting the developmental timeline through examples that you're sharing, which, which is so fantastic because I think people who are listening and and learning about the brain-based neurobehavioral model, they need to understand that it it's going to look different forever, but we, here's some, here's some examples of how it looks. Right. And the more examples that we hear, especially that are infused with hope, yeah. like what you're sharing, right. the more we can say as parents, okay, step back, be curious, accommodate mm-hmm. how let, let's see how it goes. And then see what happens. Exactly. Right. Right. And so, I would definitely say, you know, for our other daughters, our, so we have another, our youngest daughter also has FASD. Our middle daughter has other neurobehavioral conditions, not FASD, but it's definitely not going to look the same for both of them. You know, one of the ways we accommodated just recently our youngest daughter's um, developmental timeline as well as sensory issues and lots of other primary characteristics that I know you'll be talking about um, further on on Facets Fridays. You know, we were at a restaurant and she completely hit her limit because she needs much more sleep than most teenagers need, even though most teenagers need a lot of sleep um, and has much less capacity for big groups and restaurants and that kind of thing. So our daughter who looks like a young adult, she's an adult sized person, you know, um, needed to lay down in my lap in the middle of a restaurant and be able to sleep for a little while. And we let her do that. I scooted my chair back. I made space. She laid down on my lap from her chair and was able to stay in the restaurant with us, but in a very different way than I would expect a more typically developing teenager to be able to do. Um, So it can also look like that, you know, which again, I would never have done for my older daughter. We would have had a huge fight about sitting up at the table and it's just going to be a few minutes and I'm sorry the food hasn't come and it would have been a huge fight and she would have probably run away after we got home. But with my younger daughter, because we had the neurobehavioral model in this paradigm, I was able to say, okay, I think you're functioning much more like a six-year-old or five-year-old at this point. And what would I do if you were five or six? I would let you lay your head in my lap. And so that's what I'm going to do now, Um, which I think is an important part of this conversation too. I always tell people in my trainings, a really good way to think about where is my child developmentally right now at this moment in this setting is to notice the conversation you're having in your head. Um, Maybe you're having it out loud, then you need to notice that first, you know, but if it's going in your head, like, oh my gosh, you are acting like a two-year-old. Why can't you act your age? If that's what you're thinking and feeling, That's a really good clue that at this moment, that person's capacity 
is like the capacity of a two-year-old. What would you do for a two-year-old in that setting? Um, it's, it's really challenging when you're looking at a body that looks like a young adult body, but you know that what's happening in the brain right now is very different. And again, there are lots of ways that we could talk about why the brain functions that way. Um, but it is a neurological function that's happening. And if we can respond in a more appropriate way, then we often see a decrease in the behaviors that we're trying to decrease. Um, and I, I don't know um, if you necessarily want to go here, but there's a really common, but what if that happens in the midst of this conversation? So we can go there if you'd like to. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and I'd also like to tie into that, how we need to shift our expectations too, because actually this Absolutely. whole, what all of these examples that you're giving us are demonstrating how shifting expectations has to happen right. in, in our parenting, caregiving, teaching traje trajectories. Right. Um, Absolutely. So it really ties in shifting expectations, ties in with adjusting developmental timelines Absolutely. because we are parenting and, and teaching and, and, um, really just interacting with our children, um, it, having a different expectation, like you said, right. you know, being in a, a restaurant. Okay. This is too overwhelming. This is, you know, bandwidth is at, you know, this mm -hmm. developmental age shift our expectation. What are we going to do? Absolutely. And I, I would have done, you know, and I actually have done similar things where it's like, okay, let's do this. And, and again, we have to stop seeing and parenting how the world, the traditional, as I like to say, neurotypical highway does it and yes. say, okay, let's shift, let's shift yeah. gears. How do right. we slow things down? How do we accommodate? So yes, please. Let's talk about yeah. that real quick before we, we start wrapping up our conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what people often feel and what I felt in the beginning of my journey on with the neurobehavioral model was, but, but they're going to be expected to act their age out in the world. And if I don't have that expectation of them now, how are they ever going to learn to do that? And so that takes us to two different places. One is if expecting them to act their age works then keep doing it. You know, we often say at facets, if it works, keep doing it, you know, but if it's not working over and over and over again, and you're seeing more and more secondary behaviors, um, symptoms like um, aggression, fear, withdrawal, all kinds of things that happen in that mismatch of ability, brain function, and environment expectations, environmental expectations, then it's time to ask the question, okay, what do we need to do differently? Um, and what we find is that when we accommodate those needs and give extra time, those two things together, you end up getting to the same goal. The goal is absolutely for them to be able to live in the world in a happy, healthy, productive, connected way. We have the exact same goal, you know? 
we find often in our trainings, in our personal lives, in our professional work that giving extra time, knowing, okay, they may not be able to do that today. They may not be able to do that this year, but in five years, they might be able to do that or next year, they might be able to do that and meeting them where they are and really decreasing those secondary symptoms that we see allows us to meet that goal. It's not that we have a different goal. It's not that we're willing for them to just, you know, not act their age, not do what they need to do, let it all slide. That is never our goal. But how are we going to get them there in a way that maintains our relationships intact, you know, and allows us to continue to be a safe place for them, to support them in the ways that they need? Um, how are we going to get there? Maybe it's going to take us twice as long to get there which is a hard pill to swallow. You know, I remember days thinking no one should have to have a toddler for more than two years. Toddlerhood should only last two years. That's like the max, you know, but actually toddlerhood can last four years or five years or six years. And that's part of this journey is allowing that time, allowing that development and meeting our kids and young adults where they are. I have learned so much from this conversation. This is so wonderful. Lynn, you're just sharing such valuable insight and, and how, again, adjusting the developmental timeline and shifting and changing your expectations really go hand in hand in parenting, teaching, mm -hmm. caregiving children that have teens, young adults with FASD and yeah. other brain-based diagnoses. This has been amazing. And the real life examples that you have provided for us have really just clearly demonstrated these themes that really are necessary in parenting in this way. And, and how we as parents, again, when you understand FASD as a brain-based invisible disability invisible, you know, diagnosis, um, then we can say, okay, how do we shift how we're doing? Because yeah. again, we can't, just like you said, we can't expect our child, teen, young adult to do something that they are not physically able to do because right. of the, of their brain impacted. Right. So this I is, will, can I, can I add one more thing? Absolutely. Go for um, it. So I will say that another really important point of adjusting expectations and developmental timelines um, is safety. You know, when we're talking about safety and we all want our kids to be safe, we all want our kids to be okay in the world. And that's where a lot of the fear around not automatically giving a consequence for a behavior comes. You know, we want our kids to be able to function in the real world, as we often talk about. Um, but not adjusting our expectations is actually a really unsafe move. So if our goal is our kids' safety and ability to be in the world, then adjusting is actually a much safer move. Because if we're talking about a six-year-old, maybe, who physically is a six-year-old, you know, their chronological age is six, they maybe have lots of other capacities, but socially and emotionally and in some other ways, their development is lagging in that area. 
And we are not thinking, for instance, what kind of supervision does a three-year-old need? If we are not giving our six-year-old, who in some ways is still more like a three-year-old developmentally, the kind of supervision that a three-year-old needs, we're actually putting our kids at risk by expecting them to be able to know how to cross the street safely, um, those kinds of things. You know, I might leave my six-year-old in the house alone to run next door to my neighbors and get a couple eggs because I forgot them at the store. Would I leave my two-year-old home alone, my three-year-old home alone to go next door? Probably not, you know, while what I have cooking on the stove is still there and with a fire under it, you know, that kind of thing. So we're really talking about safety as well. Um, even when we're talking about social development. So a 15 year old maybe who really wants to be able to go out in the world and go to the movies with a group of friends and do all kinds of things that more, again, neurotypical kids are doing. Is that gonna be safe for your 15 year old who socially and emotionally might be more like a seven or eight year old? And those are really hard calls to make. I think that's another important part of this conversation. Yes. Yes. And thank you for bringing that up because personally, as a parent, I have been questioned many times by others saying, well, why don't you just let him try this? And, and if he fails, he fails because of safety issues. Would Absolutely. I let, you know, a developmentally, you know, age youngster right. do something that, that, involves that kind of risk or that those kinds right. of safety issues. So right. I am so glad you are, you are bringing this yeah. up because again, it, we're not enabling, we are accommodating and right. in those accommodations, safety really is addressed in those Absolutely. accommodations too. Absolutely. Oh, I'm and so again, thankful. The goal is that they would have full independence yes. one day because they'll still be happy and whole and thriving in their lives. And yes. it might mean that you give other freedoms. Mm -hmm. um, we've actually chosen that recently with one of our daughters that we're doing things we never would have imagined allowing someone to do at her age because we know she can handle it and she needs more freedom, but she can't have freedom in the way, in some other ways, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? So yes. we're limiting freedom in some ways, but we're finding creative ways to give her way more freedom in areas that she actually can um, function in happily and safely and, and all those things. So it's, it's a super creative process for yes. sure. Yes. Yeah. And it's a very fine balance, you know, it's a very mm -hmm. delicate balance, but again, and these... it changes day to day. Oh yes. <laughs> you know, it's, yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. Oh my goodness, Lynn, this has been such an enlightening and informative conversation. I have taken away so many nuggets of information from this, this conversation. So we're wrapping up this conversation. Now I would like for Lynn to share um, how you can get in touch with her, how you can learn from her. If, if you want more information, um, I'd like to give Lynn a platform now so that you all can get in touch with her. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Natalie. Um, so probably the easiest way to get in touch with me is through my website, which is just my name. It's Lynn, L-Y-N-N, -N, allsup, A-L-S-U-P.com. 
Um, and there are ways to connect with me through the website. It also talks a little bit about my work. So I am a program director with facets at this point. And so there are lots of facets webinars that are happening all the time now. It's one of the gifts of COVID um, that has been so tragic, but also kind of shifted us into a new way of thinking about things. Um, so we have several trainings coming up that I'll be a part of as well. Um, I, I do individual work with families, so I, I do all of that over Zoom. So really anyone from anywhere, we can kind of walk through the neurobehavioral model um, and do some one-on-one -on -one coaching with, okay, what does this look like in your actual home? You know, what, what, what needs to happen next um, for you? So I do that as well. Um, so in addition, I offer trainings um, for people in different places. So I've done trainings for school districts, um, school counselors, psychiatrists. It's amazing how many people have actually never heard of FASD, um, but I really am, am available to do facets trainings um, with the neurobehavioral model both in person and also virtually around the country and definitely in Texas where I am. Yeah, so thank you. Let's see, I also hopefully have a book coming out really soon. I've spent the last couple of years writing down our story, wanting to share the neurobehavioral model um, and how it's impacted our family in a way that hopefully can bring a lot of hope to people and also some kind of first steps into the neurobehavioral model. So that hasn't come out yet. I'm still working on the publishing, but it should be here uh, before too long. It's called Finding Home. And there will be information about that on my website as well. And we will have Lynn back to discuss her book when that book comes out, because I will Excellent. definitely be purchasing and reading that book. And Thank I you. know that that will be such a great resource to families. So Thank wonderful. You. And all of Lynn's information will be posted in today's Facets Friday's program notes, which you can find on FASDHope.com, or uh, you can also find uh, in our social media shares. You know that we like to end our episodes on hope takeaways, which are just words of hope that you can provide for uh, parents, caregivers, loved ones, even individuals that have an FASD or brain-based diagnosis. What words of hope can you share for them on their journey when it comes to thinking about adjusting our, our developmental timelines and shifting our expectations? embrace the journey that we're on. I know that is easier said than done. It's, I, I love control and planning um, as much as the next person, maybe a little bit more. But for me, there's been incredible freedom. Really getting to celebrate these amazing things that open up that I would never have dreamed of, that I could never have even asked for that, that happened along the way. And the relationships that really are available um, with most of our kids, maybe not all of them, depending on their histories, um, but with most of our kids that we really have the opportunity to stay connected to them in the ways that we want to, to experience life with them that 
is really full of joy and celebration and laughter and hope. Um, I never could have imagined that was possible with um, a couple of my kids, especially, and, and it really is. And so, yeah, that would be my, my word of hope. And on those words of hope, we will end our Facets Friday episode. Lynn Alsup, thank you so much for being on FASD Hope. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a privilege. And thank you for all the amazing work that you're doing for the worldwide community. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Beckione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.